the future of football. You're now locked in to the future of football, a brand new podcast from Versus that brings you closer to the people, the stories and their dares that are shaping the future of the game we love. Every episode, we'll be breaking down some of the biggest talking points from the cultural, social, business sides of the game, giving you unrivaled insight on off-the-pitch movements, taking us into a new era. I'm Ayo Quadri, and each week, I'll be joined by my co-host from the Versus team and some movers and shakers within the world of football. This week, staring the ship with me are Johnny and Corey. How are you guys doing? Good, mate. Good. Another podcast, another product, another series launch. You're a busy man, but it's, it's good to be busy. So, yeah, now all, all good in this, in this shit. How about yourself? Yeah, all good, all good. Booked and busy. It's good to be doing this. We've, we've spoken about it behind the scenes. We've essentially had pilots of this, but we're here now. <laughs> we're here, lads. It's good to be moving. And some of the conversations we have off the cuff anyway are amazing. And our platform is the future of football. Therefore, this should be as amazing too. But we do have a special guest with us. For me, this, this guest is an unbelievable gentleman he probably won't remember this but when I was at university I actually met him because I was working at a shop he came in and he was really polite to me and I was like this is a professional footballer being like really this is before I even entered this realm and it was like this this is a professional footballer and he's just like so nice so personal we had a chit chat this is someone that's a former Premier League baller an Olympian a board member of so many Great, great, noble, noble things. He's probably forgotten how many balls he sits on. I asked him earlier, I said, congratulations. He was like, what are you on about? Then <laughs> remember. <laughs> He's also a producer as well, who's doing some amazing work. We have the one only Marvin Sordell. How are you? I'm good, thanks. What uni did you go to? I don't remember this. Commentary. Commentary. But yeah, I was working in a boring and you popped in. This would have been about, I was going to say, I don't want to show my age, but I'm not that old anyway. <laughs> but um, probably about four years ago, probably. Four years ago. And in a boring in Birmingham? Yeah, I was fossil. That was a shop. You popped in and you were just like really proper nice and everything. I can't even remember that. I mean, I'm, I, try, I like to think I'm a nice guy anyway. So like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying it like I'm surprised, but, like, but it's good to hear that. No, no, of course, of course, of course. Pleasure to have you with us for our first episode. And it's crazy because 2020 has been a crazy year like none of our. We've seen the world disrupted by a pandemic. I feel like being in lockdown has given us moments to reflect and think about where the world is heading. And in those moments, we've seen some amazing things, especially within the game that, that we love. I mean, we've seen across everything, the birth of the biggest civil rights movement ever. Out of that as well, we've seen a lot of attention go to causes that should have been there before, but that's heightened. We've seen the Black Lives Matter movement be amplified within sports. We've seen more calls for equality and inclusion. And I feel that, even coming to the end of this year, we've seen some more amazing things, namely this amazing film that Cop 90 have dropped, Beat the Bias, which addresses racial bias in commentary, a lack of media diversity and structural inequality in terms of parts of football which are not on the field. So it was really, for me, it was a really, really powerful piece, but how do we feel in the room about it? And how do you feel about the culmination of all of that coming towards the end of what's been a, a crazy year? It's important isn't it? I mean, like you said, like these, these issues have existed for a long time. And I think this year has been the tipping point for a lot of things and for a lot of people. 
And so I'm not surprised that these things are out there, you know, the, the reports that have come out, you know, the people who are airing their thoughts in this area, particularly around race and racial discrimination. We've been airing these thoughts and we've been having these feelings for a very long time. And now they've really come to the forefront. It's making people have to have this discussion. And it's important that we have these discussions because without really acknowledging something and addressing it, we cannot move forward. You have to first accept what it is, accept that it exists, which I think we're still on that first step that some people are not getting past that first step of accepting that it exists and it's still there. But it's almost like the, the seven step program. You know, the first, the first stage is acceptance to understand that it's there. Because you can't move past solve something that essentially people think doesn't exist. It's impossible. Now, I, I totally agree. And for me, the thing that stands out is when you have research that's done and findings are then presented and people still kind of look at the findings and kind of go, I don't think that's right. Namely, probably from picking up one key theme, it's the whole report which was done around the racial bias in football commentary from yeah. how uh, black players treated compared to... Um, a white counterpart what's great is we have a former professional football with us but we also have football fans and people that work within the media space so I'm really intrigued to understand what our viewpoints on that sort of report was maybe why we think this has happened if it's something we've noticed increase over time and how it's been what can be done essentially so I'll probably start with you Johnny because you are probably one of the most vocal and active football fans I know you represent really well kind of old school going to the games, but being so engrossed in terms of the social media view. So in terms of like when you see football, what is your viewpoint on, on this area? I think for me, you always have to remember that football doesn't exist outside of society, right? And if you've ever worked in an office, you're always in the minority, right? I'm always the person to get asked about my opinion on hip hop, my opinion on Joloff, even though I'm Caribbean, you know, from my white colleagues. I think that when you look at people in their own work environment, just because it's a sports environment, you've got to remember that it doesn't exist outside of the world where people are going to make assumptions based on race. That's the reality of the world that we live in. I think the thing about this year is, you know, as Marvin touched on, is that we've been very vocal about these issues for a long time. I think that the difficulty with football is that it's felt very siloed and isolated from being in a place where the sport was ready to come and tackle a lot of these issues. I think that in terms of the copper film, it comes at a really good time because... We finally had a year, as Marvin said, where people are actually willing to listen to the facts first and foremost and be presented with those facts. I think that still, you know, the reaction to that report tells us that even, as you say, when people are presented with the facts, they're still not ready to accept them. I think if we are ever going to have the conversation, the end of this year is the perfect time for me. What about our viewpoints, or just in the room in general, about kind of actually seeing that play out, the, the sort of actual commentary of things play out what's the thoughts on that in the room I mean I think obviously my perspective is so different to the three guys that I'm sitting with but I think what's interesting for me is as as a white journalist as a white football fan I'm kind of able to sit here and listen and listen to the facts first which I think as you guys have mentioned so far is, is super important I think it's something that people should be willing to do across the board anyway and I feel like with this topic in particular like I remember seeing stereotypes within football around black players for as long as I've been a football fan and like myself as like a from a from a six or seven year old I went to a lot of Wimbledon games right in the late 90s early noughties and I was so influenced and struck by that team as a, as a child and I think part of the reason for it and why it felt so different in many ways was the prevalence of British black players that were in that team like we had a team of um, Robbie Earl, 
Marcus Gale, Jason Yule, Carl Court, Carl Lieber, Efenokoku, right, who obviously played for Nigeria as well. But I think what that team was really molded on, and I reflected on this today when I watched the film, was that the club really built up this idea of black physicality as a big part of that team and really embraced it to an extent where looking back, it's kind of slightly uncomfortable in certain aspects, to be honest. Like I remember especially, right, there would be corner kicks. And the second the corner kick was confirmed, the stadium announcer would play music, like war music, to signal that essentially the opposition team is about to be in danger because there's a big group of black attacking players who are going to hit this ball. And it's almost you saw the black physicality in players then treated by the club, treated by the manager and treated by the fan base as something as a novelty in a sense. And it was something that everyone in the club was kind of part of. And I feel like looking back now, as a kid, even then, I recognised that as a thing that was happening. And as you mature and grow up, you kind of realise that looking back, physicality has been kind of baked into the psyche of how football fans have viewed black players for so long. I think it's really welcoming now that we can reflect on that and discuss why that's happened, how it's happened. And the copy film is so perfect for opening that box, really, I think, and kind of really unpacking these ideas for the first time. And of course, what all those things were, right? They, they were stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes are, is that they're lazy and they're often based in poor understanding. And they also spread extremely, extremely quickly. And I think what this copper piece has been able to do and what discussions subsequently can do is unpack this idea of why physicality why power has been associated, why pace has been associated to black players for so long. And on the other side, right, if you look at 2020, I'm a Newcastle fan now, right? You look at Adelson Maximan and the way he's spoken about, on commentary especially, man, it, it drives me insane. This idea that this guy won't know what he's about to do next. We see that applied to so many black players of skill for so long. And in his case especially, his fleet-footedness, his speed of movement, the technique he possesses, the amount of brain power you have to do to control the ball at that speed and with that technique is phenomenal. Like, you want to see what someone who doesn't know what they're doing next looks like. Ask me to try the things he tries on the football pitch. Like, it just makes absolutely zero sense. And I think it's time for those ideas to be really analysed and reflected upon and for players to really be spoken about in a far more engaged, influential, nuanced way. And I feel like, yeah, these challenges need to be had uh, at every level in media every level in commentary and also in coaching staff as well to a degree i think if that's a big thing i think people need to be open-minded about how they have spoken about black players in the past why that wasn't appropriate and how you reshape the discussion for now so yeah i mean in, in retrospect like i said i've seen this idea of, of stereotyping as far back as i can imagine and um it's definitely welcome that this discussion is being had now within the piece itself um there's a really unique part where uh, Mika richards is talking and he says his game was often described in the way that we're talking about now and for him he understood it because of the sort of player he was. However, what he didn't agree with is exactly what you said, is when you have players like St. Maximam, in his case, he was talking about Yaya Toure, who was an amazing footballer. But even still, he was given this sort of stereotype of these things that we're saying now. Marvin, from your sort of experience of having played in the top league and played at different levels of football and just being within it, not just in the limelight, but in, in the back end of it, how did you feel in those sort of situations if you ever had to face that? It's frustrating, really. I mean, even even being on the side of listening to it and watching football, you know, people, one player that often has had it is Wilfred Zaha. And I've played with Wilf, and he's an incredible football player. Incredible. Now, the, the things that he can do with a ball, very few players on the planet can do. And yet, he still has this tag on that that is he's labelled with like when he gets the ball you don't know what he's going to do next you think this guy's been doing this for 
a good 10 years now and doing the same thing, beating players in, in very similar ways and people can't work out how to stop him because he's very good at what he does. Maybe at some point you're going to stop him and think, actually, he's just a very good player <laughs> and he's got very good feet. It's not, he's, he's brain dead. And you know, I think things like that are just so much deeper than just football. Because this, this, this stereotype, this lazy stereotype comes from God knows how long ago when black people are, are called dumb and we're not intelligent and we can't think for ourselves. And so now it comes onto the pitch, it's like, all we're good for is being strong and fast. We can't think because black people are not, are not intelligent. That's, that's the stereotype that comes from way, way back. But yet it still exists, but it exists in a, in a different type of way. So if a player is fast, it's, uh, all he is is pace. Whereas if it's someone else, it's, you know, he's got this attribute and that attribute. And you think, even Mika Richards is saying, yeah, maybe he was fast and he was strong, but he was a good defender as well. You know what I mean? And to be a good defender, you have to be intelligent. It's impossible to be a good defender without being intelligent. You can't just have pace and just have strength because you're not going to play in the Premier League. You're not going to play for England. You're not going to win anything without having that level of intelligence. No one can play at that level without having a level of intelligence. You cannot just rely on physicality. It's not possible. And so it is really frustrating, you know, for me, particularly when I look at it and then you see coaches as well who can, you know, perpetuate that stereotype as well. And you think some players maybe will not be allowed to play in their position or play a certain type of way because they're told you have to play like this because that's what I see you as. Whereas other players may not get that. And so you think, why does this continue? why is it's a big why but one thing i personally am happy about is we're asking the why and not only are we asking the why we're asking the what as in what can be done i know one thing especially like the the film highlights is how a lot of broadcasters now are doing specific training to try and rid that sort of stereotype if it's if it's happening knowingly or unknowingly but what else do we reckon can be done? Because you've alluded to that. It's not just about on the commentary side. It's with the coaches. What's great is people like yourself are speaking from experiences and they're saying, I don't like the way that happened to me. I don't like the way it happens to other people. It needs to stop, which is great. But what else can be done? I mean, we're at, we're at the first step. We haven't been here before. You know, we've not, been, we've not been in this position where we've said something and it's been received. Whereas this year, particularly, we're speaking and it's like, okay, we're going to listen to you and just... Maybe take in what you're saying and how you feel and let's look to address that. Because before that, it was just get on with it or you couldn't speak up. You, know, you, you look at generations of past saying we're able, we're looking at this generation now and saying, look how brave they are, look how strong they are for taking the stances that they do on specific issues. Of course, you have to be brave to do that. But at the same time, like you have to have backing at this by your colleagues, by the people who are, who are neutral almost, not, not opposing it, but the people who are neutral have to be on board with, with what you're doing and what you're saying, which is now the first time that we have this. We have a lot of people who are neutral, like, actually, this isn't okay. You know, this isn't fine to just continue like this because there's a large amount of people who are in a certain demographic who feel unhappy with how things are and they're frustrated. And we're going to listen to them at this point in time now and actually see what we can do as opposed to just kind of brushing it under the carpet. You know, we're, this is now, we're putting this in your face and you have to see this and you have to address this. It even goes as far as the issue around taking a knee. It isn't just about that's going to solve it. It's we're putting this issue in front of your face. You have to see this. You have to think about it. And the first step, obviously, around this is to have that conversation. We're having this conversation now. As you said, broadcasters having that training. It's now thinking. So 
they don't just spurt out anything they want and it's fine. It's, I'm going to say something. Is that the right thing to say? Maybe it's not. Maybe somebody would feel a certain type of way if I said this. Maybe this is up, upholding a lazy stereotype. So I'm going to think about what I'm going to say and maybe I'm going to change that. And that's, that's an important thing because we're unpicking things that have been sewn into the fabric of society for centuries. And we're not going to, like, if, if you think, if you're sat there, someone's sewn, sewn a, a blanket that's as big as an ocean, you're not going to just tear it apart straight away. You have to unpick it slowly. It's going to take time. But the first thing that you have to do, firstly, stop the people sewing it. <laughs> and then you can start unpicking it bit by bit. You're, you're 100% right. I feel another aspect of it which is so important is representation and having the right voices. And kind of because one of the major things, and it's discussed in the doc as well, is if you look at the Premier League and you look at the percentage of black footballers, I believe it's around 33%. If you then look at the representation within broadcasting and written media, etc., I'm pretty sure the stats from the, um, actually said in terms of columnists, if they're black, they, they would have been former footballers. One percent of journalists are actually black as well. Yeah. So, and most of the people reporting on the game or discussing the game are not kind of in line with the footballers not just in sport broadcast and real media why is representation so important because to me i feel like it's a key if there's not representation you don't understand not everyone is going to understand anyway but if you've got loads of people in the room and you can talk about experiences you can get a better understanding and for me that's where true diversity and inclusion does come in because you can have diversity quotation mark by adding someone who is not like yourself to a conversation if they can't feel that they can get involved and create change which is representative to them then it's not really inclusive and the root of things doesn't really change so why is representation in general really important here from my perspective the most why it's so important is because it gives people who are on that side of the fence a very well-rounded perspective of what it is they're talking about. And I had this discussion with a friend the other day about history and social media, which sounds far-fetched. But the reason why now in this day and age, we question everything is because we have so many different perspectives. Social media and the news give us a million different perspectives to one story. And when it comes down to things like representation, where does the, the perspective come when it comes to this aspect and when it comes to what people may want to hear how they want to hear it how they're going to feel by receiving this information or being talked about in this way so without representation you don't get that you don't get any diversity of thought without diversity of thought then all of the things are going to just stay exactly the same I really agree with Marvin on that. I think from my perspective, you know, I wrote a piece on this a few months back about a situation I was in when I worked at one of the big major media organisations in this country. And someone who was in a more senior role than me said multiple things that made me feel extremely uncomfortable about race. And it was coming from what at first felt like more of ignorance than anything malicious. But for me in that situation, the real difficulty wasn't so much that the person had said those things. Because I think that if you work in big organizations, things do get said to make you feel uncomfortable. It is the reality of the world we live in. The real problem was that there was no one at a senior level within that organization I could then go to and say, this person has said these things to me and it makes me feel really uncomfortable for these reasons. Because I had no faith that those people would understand the nuance of what was being said. And this situation in particular went on for a number of months. And, you know, I had friends, black friends saying to me, you need to go and say something. 
and I was saying to them, I really don't feel like I can. Like, there's no one I think that will understand this. And when I eventually did go and speak to the most senior person that I had access to, who was white, they turned around to me and said, I don't think this is a race issue, which is exactly what I thought would happen. And for me, it was the clearest example in my whole life of a point where I thought, if there were just more black people here at a senior level, I would feel so much more comfortable in my day-to-day work. But more than that, when something happens, I felt the, you know, the need and the comfortability to speak out on it. And, you know, my worst fears were confirmed when, you know, I went and finally spoke out and the response was kind of my worst nightmare, really. And that was really difficult to, to deal with on a personal level. And the thing about this year that's been so great, and I think the one thing that has changed is that even if that organisation is exactly the same in terms of its staff makeup, I do believe that a black person there would be able to speak up and be listened to now because of the fact that finally, when it comes to these issues and the nuances around microaggressions, you know, whether it's football, whether it's like broader media, we are finally being heard. But it's so important to have people that we can go and talk, turn to and talk to about these issues. And I think it's a really big reason why when it comes to this issue around bias and commentary, it hasn't been taken seriously up till now because the vast majority of commentators are white. So there hasn't really been, you know, many people within that space to turn around and say, there are issues around what you're saying, because that group of people probably aren't aware to a large extent of the fact there's an issue, because there's no one even there telling them that that is the case beyond people in the public and players. And as we know, that hasn't really been enough, and I'm sure we'll come onto it, but the fact that broadcasters, written media, and even in kind of the more media production world are finally getting in more people of color, is a huge factor as to why we're actually getting some movement around these issues now. I mean, Mayor, especially you, right? I mean, you're at the very start, really, of your kind of journey into media and journalism. So for you yourself, like, I mean, how important do you think it is that, you know, we need to get more young black writers in in, in this world? And obviously, you know, you, you're, congratulations, you're part of the this year's Football Blacklist One to Watch cohort. And like, you know, why do you think those kind of basically those, those organisations, those platforms are so important to present, you know, the worldviews of, of people of different backgrounds? And how how impactful do you think those next generation of creators can be and what change do you think we're going to see from that? I think it's it's really important you know I mean if I have to be honest with my sort of route into sports media per se I kind of you know got to go around see these sort of things see these sort of institutions be in the building and very quickly I could easily see that you know what there's not a lot of people like me within these rooms I can see me on the pitch people like me on the pitch I can see people similar to me in terms of the talent, but in these rooms, in terms of executive rooms, production rooms, rooms that make things happen, come together, because it's not just the front end of things. There's massive teams that happen and make this world that we're in tick. I wasn't seeing that at all. And it it was worrying. So I was like, okay, so how do we make, how can you then ever make, true content compelling content that's relevant if you haven't got a mixture of people in the room and it was a real worry for me fortunately i'm in a situation where things are changing but where i am and what i'm enabled to do and even doing stuff of my own but you can kind of go forward and create what you want to create which is great but even in that i still face some sort of uproar i've had times where people see me doing an interview with a sports personality and be like, why are you wearing a hoodie and a do-rag? Are you, you're a wannabe gangster, etc. And it's like, 
oh, so I can't even cover my hair because I've got a bad haircut. Oh, I can't be innovative because I'm doing something at home and everything. And it's, it feels like you're covered with a lens naturally that others won't be. But I am passionate about giving people other opportunities with the small opportunities I've got. I know that there's loads of other people out that you, um, you mentioned in, in terms of winning the award. I started my journey through Becoms, essentially, who are doing a lot of stuff about actually saying that, you know what, you need to look and diversify your talent. Even with what I'm doing now, I've been given free reign to kind of be like, you know what, be creative, do what you need to do, like be your true self. One thing that I feel because of how exec boards and everything are very probably similar to f- footballers, actually, you always feel like you can't be yourself in some of these rooms or some of these places because it's not acceptable or it's not the right thing or you can't talk like that. And I'm glad that in the media sort of sense of people like myself or people that have been doing stuff way before me kind of setting the, the, the road and saying, you know, you can be yourself, things are changing. But even on that towards you, Marvin, how did it feel being a black footballer? And I'm saying this because I've had conversations with footballers and they've told me their perspective on it. So I'm interested to hear yours. Being a black footballer and for the probably majority of your your career, post-interview, you come and do it and it's with someone who's not got any sort of relation to you in any way, shape or form. How did that kind of feel as your career went on? To be honest, you kind of get numb to it anyway and you get numb to that process of post-match interviews because... Even when I watch interviews now, I think most of the time I just think, what's the point? Because everybody's going everybody's gonna to ask the same question, give the same answer in the same tone, in the same way. Regardless, win, lose or draw, every single player says the same thing. It boils down to the fact that, you know, we did well, we're going to go again. Thanks, fans, et cetera, et cetera. There is no, like, the thing is, at some point, that, that model is going gonna, is gonna to break. And somebody's just going to come out and say, I'm just going to be myself because I'm tired of just this. Or it'll take a journalist to ask an interesting question and the player goes, oh, actually, I'm going to respond to that in, <laughs> in a way that I feel like this person kind of gets it, kind of gets me maybe and, and is more interested about having this conversation with me. I had that thing one time in my, in my entire career, which was probably right, right, right at the end, where somebody asked me what it was like growing up. The first time in my whole career and it was the first question they asked and it completely threw me and I was like I don't even like give me a couple <laughs> give me a second because I don't even know how to respond to this because I've never been asked this before and I wasn't expecting that I wasn't expecting you to ask ask this question because people don't really care people don't really care about me as a person and yet when I walk into that that situation in general that's my first thought anyway because I'm looking at somebody who in the end of the day they see me as like as players you almost think that journalists see you as beneath them because you're just a talent you're the, you're the entertainer. Even when it comes to, to fans, fancy players is beneath them. Players are almost bottom of the barrel and it's like, you just got to do what people are saying just to please everyone. And so when you haven't got that connection with somebody anyway, you just think, let me just do what, say whatever I need to say so I can just keep it moving. Journey, I mentioned how you're kind of like one of the greatest football fans and I, I know, but you have this sort of benefit that not only are you just this massive football fan but you're working within a space now and I guess this probably goes towards myself to a certain extent but do you ever feel like as yourself within a space which is highly white space do you feel like you're almost sometimes like a representation of your race in terms of being within media or being a football fan and you mentioned your piece which was a piece that went really big because a lot of people like this is kind of a conversation that's not been had before do you then feel like being part of a minority and then speaking about things, very similar to how I've spoken about loads of topics within sports media, that you're almost representing an entire race? Does that feel heavy at, at times? It does. And the thing I want to preface this by saying is that 
I benefit from huge privilege of being a mixed race person. And I think that that has allowed me to a large extent, both within media, but I think more so within going to football matches and being amongst a predominantly, you know, most football fans at live games are white, has allowed me to navigate that to some extent. The thing that makes that then difficult is that sometimes all of a sudden, like you say, Maiwa, you're suddenly reminded that, yes, you're allowed to pass to a certain extent in the way that maybe other people wouldn't, but don't forget you are still black and you are still, and you're not one of us. And I think the reason that becomes really tricky when it comes to a live football environment, as I've spoken about at length this year, is that because you support the same football team as someone, they feel like they can say things about opposition fans, opposition players, and that because you're one of them, you're not going to take offence to that. There's a particular incident that I spoke about. I kind of touched on it briefly in the piece, but I was at Stamford Bridge as an away fan with West Ham a long time ago because Ashley Cole was still playing and Ashley Cole was repeatedly called a monkey by two West Ham fans who were literally sitting in the row behind me. And when I turned to like confront them about it, their initial response was, oh, but we're all West Ham. As if because I'm a West Ham fan, that means that for whatever reason, I'm not going to be offended by them saying this to a Chelsea player because he's Chelsea. And almost that in that scenario, race is irrelevant to some extent, which is a really bizarre situation to find yourself in. And then all of a sudden, when you speak up, you do feel like, okay, it is heavy on my shoulders. Like I'm speaking up for Ashley Cole, you know, a player I don't particularly like. But at the end of the day, race and, you know, my views of anti-racism, of course, run much deeper than my love of football does. And my love of football runs deep. You know, it run, really runs deep. And I think that that is something that people do find difficult to understand, particularly in those scenarios. So like, yes, absolutely, at times. I do feel like when it comes to going to live football, I do represent my race. And that has got me into many tricky situations um, like that one. And it does weigh heavy. You know, when I walked out of that game, I say walked out of that game, I was actually escorted out of that game because I was so angry about what happened. And I vowed never to return to football in that moment. You know, I just, I made a decision at the time, an emotional decision that I couldn't go to football matches if they were going to be like that. Lo and behold, a month later, I'm back. But it absolutely does weigh heavy. I can, I can relate to that a lot within the media space. Because I mean, with a lot of the stuff I've done and a lot of stuff I've been trying to tackle about the lack of diversity and especially specifically within sports media i've had people come to me privately and say stuff like oh but don't you think kind of you're going to black mark yourself by speaking so strongly about these things or or do you don't you feel like none of these people want to employ you because you're speaking negatively on them and everything and for me it's i've always thought that the purpose is is more important like i said i'm i'm extremely fortunate in the situation i do find myself in i'm empowered and I feel like that's what should be happening. It's great. And as is mentioned in the film, that these safe spaces are being created by people because they've seen what's happened for so long and they've said enough is enough. I'm going to create a space where I'm wanted. But I feel at the same time, there has to be that balance where people of power have to recognise that, you know, enough is enough. We need to make sure that we're actively creating equality and safe spaces within our institutions. Much like what you mentioned earlier, Jenny, about if there was safe spaces there and there was more people and there was more representation, that sort of conversation, you'd have been able to have it. I feel like sports media is starting to turn, but I feel like there's going to be an acceleration now for all of the work that everyone, a lot of people are doing because I should never have to feel that because I'm speaking about how the industry I want to be in is, that no one will ever 
take a look at me for anything because they think that, you know, I'm, I'm causing trouble. Effectively, I'm trying to make the industry a better place for everyone to be a part of and to work in. And it's very similar to footballers because the amount of times footballers have come and, and spoken out and then almost smear campaigns in the media, if we, have to, if we have to call it for what it is, smear campaigns in the media come afterwards. It's funny, it's really, really interesting because uh, Mickey Richards touches on how himself and James Milner could buy the same vehicle, but he would be the one that is attacked for it, not James Milner. But flip forward to a few years, many years on this year, I've seen the increase in allyship. I've seen Jordan Henderson come out and say that, you know what, we need to be treated equally, that we're all in this together. I've seen Ben Mee take stands on things. And I feel like there's so many different components coming together to make sure that on the pitch, off the pitch, within media, people are actively saying that, you know what, it's not just about people that are feeling oppressed, creating their own spaces. We need to make sure that all the spaces are equal. It's not just yeah. about equality in, in the corner in that room. No, the whole room, the whole building, the whole institution has to be equal. And it, maybe it's because of everything that's happened this year and that moment of stillness, but it, it, is, it is amazing that it's happening. I'm also on that I like to talk about progress. I love to talk about how things are moving forward and what else can be done. And speaking of Mickey Richards, this year we've seen his emergence. We've seen Alex Scott. We've seen Patrice Evra in broadcast media specifically in a space that loads of people have discussed it being such a white space. We're seeing the emergence of talents. Ian Wright, how do we feel about that emergence of, of these different talents? Firstly, it's necessary because as I've touched on before, to get a well-rounded perspective on a story, you need to have different minds, different people thinking in different ways. And that's going to come through diversity, just naturally, because of the way we're brought up, the way we see the world is, is going to be different. And that's a good thing to get very well-rounded perspective, because in the end of the day, as in media, what you're doing is telling a story. And if you tell it from one side, that's very biased. And so if you want to tell the story in the best way possible, you need to tell it from a broadest perspective as possible, like particularly when it comes to factual things like news, like stories you know, news story. So you need to have all those different voices and all those different emotions and different perspectives on this to give it the most life and, and get people to understand it in the best way. So it's important, but, you know, it's only, it's only the beginning because that's what we're seeing on screen. You know, off screen, there's, there's, there's a thousand other roles that potentially are taking a lot longer to, to make progress in. But again, as I said, I think one of the biggest things about this year is not just the fact that black people have the opportunity to speak about this, but it's being received as well. Like, I don't think we should underestimate the power of, of allyship because as you just mentioned there, it's not, it's not just down to creating a safe space for us that we can have conversation in. It's making sure that every space is safe, making sure that quality is the main agenda, regardless of who's having the conversation, whether it's a room full of black men, a room full of white men and white women, Asian people, wh whatever, whoever's, whoever's in the room, equality should be on the agenda because like, what kind of world are we going to be living in if if everybody just wants to be just completely secluded by themselves with their with their own kind and and not being challenged of thought at all like how, how can we make any progress in that way i totally agree and what really stands out for me is the personalities i mentioned as what and you rightly alluded to are kind of front of the screen what we see mm. as i alluded to before and you've perfectly said now behind the scenes it's a very interesting story. That's probably the best way to put it. And I feel like you're in a really wonderful position because post your playing career now, you're now a producer and you've now done some amazing work this year. However, for you, it's quite interesting because your producer, who is also a former 
football player. So from your perspective of seeing that world from how you were as a footballer, now being a producer, how has that felt for you? I mean, things are different for me because I was a football player. When you're a football player, you get treated differently. Like, to, you know, just the regular black man. And I'm very privileged that I'm able to go into rooms and have the conversations I do because of the status that I have from playing football. Whereas I have conversations with a lot of other people and I'm seeing people struggle and do things. And I just think to myself, all I can do is help as much as I can. Whether it's an introduction, whether it's conversation, whether it's coming on a podcast, wherever it may be, if I can help a little bit to help someone that's talented to make the breakthrough or, or just do a little bit to help them nudge slightly forward, even if it's just a piece of advice, then that's important because so many people don't have that. They don't have the people that they can go to to help them get to the next, next step. And if you can't get in the door of a building, whether it's a big company, to get that on your CV initially, then you're not going to get the chance to go to the next step and do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And the reason why we're able to see so many things and so many people progress is mostly because they're doing it on their own. And it's mostly because of social media mostly because of the relationships they have with friends. And so they can get a friend that, that they might grew up with who became a football player or became a basketball player, an athlete, or whatever it may be, a musician. And they, they help them get to the next stage. It shouldn't have to take that, though. It should just take someone who's just good at what they do. They work hard. It's like, you know what? I'm going to knuckle down. I'm going to go down the traditional route like everybody else. It's not that simple, though, even though it should be. And it, it, it you know, for me, it's frustrating, really, because it, it should be as straightforward as if you're good, you get the opportunity. That's it. You know, but as we know, and, and has been for, for a very long time, that's not the case because people, people buy into themselves, essentially. When you go into a room, if I was interviewing and all I was thinking was my company is me and essentially all the people in the company are, are a reflection of me as opposed to diverse thought and things like that. That's, what, that's how most companies operate and most people operate is they buy into the people who are similar to them because they have similarities in interests, where they grew up, what, they, what food they like, what country they grew up in or what, you know, their family history and background and, and where they travel and, and where they hang out. All of these things are the reason why people hire in the way they have done. And because there haven't been people that look like me and you at that level, they're not going to hire someone that looks like me and you. So it's about breaking that cycle at some point. And again, I think we're, we're quite lucky in the sense that we're getting to this point now where because of social media, there's like a crossover between media and social media. Like you see a lot of the people in, that are YouTubers and, and really uh, popular and talented on social media. Again, the opportunities in, in, the, in like the broadcast type stuff. So like Sky Sports and Talk Sport because they're really popular. And that gives, them, that gives other people opportunity now to see them firstly, but also to break through in that space where it's just the, the traditional route. And so we're, we're definitely making progress. It's just how do we continue to do that and how do we do that on scale? Because the most important thing to, and should always be the most important thing, is the power of the story. How can we tell the story in the, in the best way possible? And to tell the story in the best way possible, you need to have the most diverse thinkers and creative thinkers at the table telling that story. 100%. I mean, if you were literally, if you work in editorial or you work in the information industry, the general objective of that world, right, is to inform the world in the best way possible. That, that's yeah. what you've got to do. And to do that, you need diversity and inclusivity to provide a more wide-rounded, wide vivid, accurate view of the world we live in. I mean, look, on a versus perspective, like Mayo and Johnny, you've come on board and helped us craft stories that without your input, without your expertise, without your lived experiences, 
we wouldn't be able to make those pieces that have such an impact to touch people. And I feel like, like you say, Marvin, you said it so well many times, diversity and inclusivity is just an essential, I think, in media to tackle misinformation, to tackle stereotypes, yeah. to tackle prejudices that don't need to exist, really. Like, and if you talk about bias within sports media as it exists right now, having that inclusivity at the heart of any input, I think is essential to getting better output. That just has to be a fundamental change. Absolutely. One thing that um, really stood out was social media and I believe that as a byproduct of football just being so online now, are we seeing a better understanding of issues that we're discussing right now because of social media? Probably. I'd, ho- I'd hope so. Uh, I'd hope so. I think like, yeah, the, the, the cost and the benefit with social media, obviously, is the absolute proliferation of information that exists now to an extent where, of course, you have such a wide source of information which you can make better informed judgments. The bad side to it, of course, is that you have even more voices you can find to back up your misinformed opinions. Like you pretty much look at, and we can talk about many, many pieces we've put out, right? You can talk about the piece that I wrote about BLM and white players speaking up and the hate we received from it. If you probably count the numbers, far outweighed the positive feedback we got from it. And I mean, it depends where you look. Of course, I think it's up to everyone to, to kind of, I suppose, use hopefully a curated sense of judgment to find the best sources to we to read also like a wide range of information, maybe stuff you don't always agree with, find new perspectives, find best in class voices and use use all those inputs to best inform your judgment. I feel if you try and go into social media with an open mind that is ready to kind of consume best-in-class information, you have more at your disposal than ever before. If, unfortunately, you do get trapped in a spiral of, of misinformation and sources that maybe have hate at the heart of them, that is equally difficult to get out of. I think, yeah, the good thing is, right, like social media definitely has democratized voices and outputs more than ever before. And as a result, there's definitely more value there to find. But naturally, on the flip side, we all know social media can also be a toxic place equally. And I feel like that is also why the voices that are trying to be progressive, are trying to make change, are trying to present diverse viewpoints, have to work so much harder and better to ensure that argument does win out at the end of the day, I think. Like, you know, we're we're trying to change the game ourselves. Marvin, you're trying to do it. There are lots of platforms and people that want to present new, better informed narratives that champion progressivity generally. And I think we're in a space where those voices are ready to be heard 100%, but you also need to be prepared to double down on those opinions and those standards and those values and go hard than ever. Because I mean, Johnny, right, we can probably even, this this narrative does sync up quite nicely with what you wrote about the taking the knee the other day, right? Like absolutely, the boos that came from fans seeing that is a horrendous thing. But those, those boos are only happening, they're only existing because taking the knee and progressive values are edging further and further and further up the social agenda, right? Totally. And you look at the response to what happens with that particular incident with Millwall, Colchester United, the players, overwhelmingly the fans really, you know, all broadcast media, all written media, widely condemning it, right? And that's the expected response now. That's totally different to a year ago. A year ago, something like that happens. We're all sitting there at home thinking, how are people going to react to this? Are people actually going to support their right to boo? Like, these are genuine questions we had to ask ourselves really not that long ago. Something like that happens now. You know, you have Wayne Rooney even coming out, you know, with a written statement on Instagram that has nuance to it. You know, I read it and I'm like, it makes me actually feel better about what's happened. That's completely new, right? That's such a positive thing. And going back to the social media thing, it allows players, you know, particularly young black players, 
to craft their own narratives. You know, we're Absolutely. not relying on what you were saying, Marvin, you know, that all we get from them is post-match interviews where they might seem like they're pretty bereft of personality. That's only because the questions are dead, oh. right? You look at someone like Raheem Sterling, right? I used to think he was quite like a quiet, relatively boring, but very talented young player. All of a sudden, you know, I heard an interview between him and Micah Richards like earlier this week on one of the big platforms. And I was just like, the change in how he speaks is almost solely driven by the fact you're putting him in front of people that look like him, understand where he's coming from. And all of a sudden, it's completely different. It's completely, and that's the, you know, the great thing about what's happening today. And you have players comfortable speaking because they own their platforms when it comes to their social media platforms. You know, they can say what they like and just put it into the world. And alongside that, you know, you have a small number of voices that they feel they can speak to in that media space that makes it very different even to when Marvin was a footballer. So on that then, it kind of brings us to a lovely place where we're talking about the safe spaces again. There's a few mentioned in the short film like CARICOM, Season Zine, Hilltop FC. How important is a safe environment to ensuring that the messages that young black fans, young black professionals want to give can be given? I have always had a lot to say on the black fan experience in particular. I have never felt able to speak about that, ever. And all of a sudden, you know, I came into, for probably the first time ever, a work environment where, although, you know, it was predominantly white, people were making a daily conscious effort to understand these issues. And all of a sudden I thought, you know what, I'm working for a platform. Why don't I have my say? Why don't I actually put my voice out into the world? And I know the response won't be overwhelmingly positive, but for me, being in an environment where people were trying to make a change, you know, and where people were genuinely willing to listen to what I had to say without any questioning of my experience gave me, you know, the agency to go and talk on these issues. And, you know, you were now at the end of the year and I'm not a writer. I've written multiple pieces on racism in football this year. Whereas this time last year, that was a million miles away. And such a big part of that for me has been feeling legitimately safe in being able to air those opinions, you know, in my work environment. I think people are a lot more open to listening and just being more empathetic. I think that's just as simple as that. You know, people are talking about their experiences and some of them are quite harrowing and really hard to listen to at times. You know, even for me, listening to some people's experiences, I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm sorry you had to go through that. Bearing in mind, I've gone through a lot of similar things myself, but I think we're getting that on mass now where people are, are just wanting to listen and just literally just be empathetic and open to, to hearing people's journeys their stories their experiences and as opposed to having to react or having to say things all the time it's just i'm just going to take this information in and see what i can do about that as opposed to saying as opposed to having to have an excuse ready or to challenge it in any way do you know what i mean i fully agree and i feel that so much progress has been made this year one thing i always saw a lot from my favourite footballers or broadcasters was always this discussion about they felt that they couldn't have these conversations because it was just them putting their, their, um, their neck on the line. Mm. Now that there's so many people with so many safe spaces and everyone's teaming up essentially and people within powerful institutions are making the difference. These important conversations and sometimes uncomfortable conversations are being had and 
therefore we've been able to move in the right direction. And I feel things like this film as well will be an uncomfortable watch for people because they'll look at things and think that I didn't really take this in before. But then decisions can be made after that. And I feel that that summarises 2020 as a whole. It's given us time to sit down and reflect. And I hope, I really hope, or almost, almost I know that going into 2021, this won't be something that slows down. Like I said, it's the biggest civil movement we've ever seen before. There's so much momentum. Even when we started to return back to normality and we thought that that horrible moment might cause a halt to it, there was such a powerful response where people said, you know what, that is why movement will continue. That This is why footballers are going to continue taking the stand on certain things. This is why within the boardrooms at every level, we're going to keep fighting for equality, diversity and inclusion. And it's great to see and long may it continue because the future of football, I hope, is a game which everyone and every person feels like it's their game. They can belong at any different aspects. They don't feel like I can't become owner of a football club or I can't become the manager of my country because I've only seen one profile. They, they don't feel that. I have to pay one position because of how I'm, I'm profiled. You're able to do what you want to do, how you want to do it, and you can dream as far as you want to go. Yeah. And touching on one thing you just said there right at the beginning, growth is uncomfortable. So for us to grow, we're going to have to be uncomfortable at some point. And if this is the point where we're uncomfortable, which then allows us to move forward, we have to be, we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's literally one of my favourite phrases, actually. You have to be, in life, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's the only way you, you move forward past things. Like, a lot of the stuff we've seen, it's not been palatable. It's, sometimes it's been like, oh, okay, I'm not too sure. And that's me saying that as a young black man, talkless of other individuals. So, But things will get better. Things will get better because we're having these conversations. And as you said, people are being receptive to these conversations. If you haven't checked it out, make sure you check out Beat the Bias, Copper 90, very, very informative, very, just to the point and the right tone, very strong piece. And just like that, we've come to the end of the first episode of the future of football. It feels like the right one to start with, especially with this year. This is the conversation that essentially maps out the future of football. The future of football is an equal game. And it's been a pleasure to have you with us, Marvin. Thank you so much. Make sure you come back again. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> and to my co-hosts, it's been a, a pleasure. Looking yeah, forward like, to uh, the next one. Likewise, man. Likewise. Yeah, Marvin, thanks so much for that. It's very, very informative. Love listening to it. And Johnny, yeah. likewise. Mayor, likewise. Make sure you're subscribed. Make sure your notifications are on. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you. The Future, future of Football. Football.